0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blockworks Macro YouTube channel. This is Alf speaking. And uh, today's guest is Mark Dow, which I'm very happy to welcome on the show. He's the author of Behavioural Macro, a former policy economist, a former hedge fund manager, and now he's running uh, basically a family office in Southern California. Mark, such a pleasure to have you here.
1: Alf, oh, thanks for having me.
0: So. Mark, you are known to have some, um, let's say, out of consensus views from time to time, but also to be a, a very good, um, let's say, educator on many topics. I mean, you were a policy economist for a while, so it's kind of your uh, your job, I would say, after all. And I know that you have a particular take on um, QT. There is a lot of discussion about QT going on. It's actually ongoing in the US. It's going to accelerate in terms of pace going into September Tell us a bit more, what's your view on QT in general? How does it work? How does it affect economies and markets? And what's your actually out-of-consensus view on QT?
1: Well, my out-of-consensus view is that people, people dramatically overestimate the, the effect of QT and the effect of QE, uh, and in particular, the mechanistic uh, driver. I, I think a lot of people don't understand exactly how it works. They have this very vague notion of the Fed is printing money and they're injecting into stock markets, but they don't really think about it much further than that. If you talk to seasoned macro guys, they go, no, I know it's an asset swap, but they still refer to it as printing and they talk about liquidity sloshing around and they're not distinguishing between the different types of liquidity. Market making liquidity is one thing, credit liquidity is another thing settlement liquidity in the banking system is a third thing and people just kind of wave their hand and say liquidity. So for me, um, and I think the Fed has come around to this too, when they started out on QE many years ago, they had certain ideas about how it would work and they've over time realized, you know, it's not as powerful as we thought uh, and it's not, um, it doesn't work the way uh, it was programmed uh, to work. The biggest thing I think to start with is just to think about how How people behave, you know, what how QT QE works and QT works, and then how people behave in response. So we know it's an asset swap, right? We know it's not injecting net worth into the financial system. We know it's not injecting net resources into the private sector. We know no one gets wealthier from QE, right? Basically, they're taking your bond out and they're giving you a deposit. Okay. Now if you're a bank, okay, well, you then the money's locked up in the federal funds reserve system and you can't use it anyway, and you've exchanged one high-quality liquid asset, what they call HQLA, uh, for another one, right? That's it. Now, you may have a duration mismatch or whatever, but for a bank, you, you know, you, you have to have a certain amount of high-quality liquid asset, and there's a small difference between Treasury and and Fed funds. You know, the Fed funds settles the same day. It's T plus zero. Yeah. right treasuries settle or t bills or whatever they settle t plus 1 and that's often generates a preference for the bank so when the banks are stressed they want more t plus 0 high quality liquid assets and they want fewer t plus 1 and that's kind of the idea behind providing liquidity to their system so they can settle under any degree of of, of stress but if you're an investor and you sell your bonds through JP Morgan or whomever to the Fed, you get a deposit. Now, you know, an asset allocator, let's say he has an allocation of 20% risk-free, which is some combination of maybe cash and T-bills and treasuries, and then he's got 80% equities. Let's just say this to keep it simple, right? What happens if within your 20% bucket, the composition changes from to fewer bonds and more deposits. You're not going to take those more deposits and run out and buy uh, NFTs or Tesla, right? And you may do that anyway, but that's a different decision, right? Just the fact that the composition of your risk-free bucket—again, duration is risk—so we're abstracting from that a little bit. But you have this bucket where you think there's no credit risk whatsoever, and it's 20 percent compos- composition changes. Are you going to go up? So there's no injection of money. Now, it may well happen that you see the stock market go up for a year or two and you say, you know what, I want to change my allocation to 10% risk-free and 90% stocks. And then you could use those deposits for something. But that's a second decision, right? So there's no real mechanistic uh, injection of resources that would lead people to buy stocks. Uh, Think about it. Think about your portfolio. If the Fed uh, does a bunch of QE for a bunch of, a bunch of months. How is that, is that going to make you sell anything? Are they pulling your funding? They're not pulling anybody's funding. Right? So that's basically it. So the, the transmission mechanism would be in two ways, you know, banks replace that duration with some other kind of duration, right? At yeah. uh, banks and fixed income funds. However, most of them are constrained. Like if you look at these large funds like PIMCO and whomever, um, they can't just sell their bonds and go buy equities. They have to buy a different flavor of bonds. Yeah. Maybe they can't even buy high-grade bonds, right? But they buy—they might buy something else, or they might keep the cash. It just depends on how they feel about it, right? Um, if if it's—and if it's an individual, of course, uh, you know their their risk appetite would have to change for them to deploy to, to to deploy that money. So people will people move out the risk spectrum every cycle anyway. They do it when, we've seen it when Fed funds are at 5% in 2000. We saw it when Fed funds were at 5% in 2006. They they move out the risk spectrum primarily be, from that old quote that I like from JP Morgan. Nothing so undermines a man's financial responsibility as seeing his neighbors get rich. <laughs> That's, That's what moved, right? It's like price changes people's minds basically is another way of saying it. Yeah. That's what moves people out the risk spectrum, and it happens every cycle, irrespective of Fed policy. So I think a lot of people attribute us moving out the, the spectrum to the Fed, right, to to QE, when it's really about something else. There's no mechanistic, there's no me- mechanistic link. There is a placebo effect because many people, so many people believe, right, that it has this effect, that it does have this effect to some degree. So right now, we'll be facing the reverse placebo effect. You
0: see what I mean? Before we jump into QT, I just want to make a couple of points about what you just said. So I worked in a bank. I was on the recipient uh, side, basically, of QE, right? So they were taking away bonds from the bank and they were injecting reserves into the bank instead. So they they were changing the composition of the investment portfolio of the bank at the end of the day. Now, all right. So what happens then, it's, it's a very interesting story, is that you have this, you know, this portfolio composition change, you have a lot of these reserves sitting there. And at the beginning, you're going to be like, yeah, okay, well, they are a high quality liquid asset anyway. And uh, well, they qualify for regulatory purposes. And you know, they make a bit less money than owning the carry from a bond. But yeah, you know, it's okay, it's fine. Now, if you do that, and if you wait for six or nine months, or 10 months, or 12 months, and vol has been very much compressed, and credit spreads have come in, and at some point, you are going to get your CFO and your and your treasurer come on your back and say, uh, "So, what are we going to do here? Shall we buy something within our mandate? Shall we rechange again the portfolio composition within our mandate to achieve some returns that we aren't achieving anymore because our bonds have been basically taken away from the portfolio?" Exactly. But it is not. It is not. Tesla, it is not NFTs, it is not Bitcoin, it remains within the very constricted mandate that banks have. So there is a portfolio allocation. The other interesting thing, Mark, is what happens if the Fed is buying bonds from uh, a pension fund, because that can happen too. The pension fund gets a deposit instead, but the pension fund literally cannot spend that deposit in the real economy in the first place. It's a bank deposit parked back again at Wells Fargo or JP Morgan or whatever it is, Or it's a bank deposit that might lead the pension fund as a second round effect to reallocate again and rechange that portfolio composition, similar to what a bank does. But once again, what are we talking about? We're talking about bonds, maybe investment grade bonds, maybe a little bit more equities. But it is not as simple as saying, well, all these reserves, all this liquidity gets back into the equity market. It's not nearly. As simple as it is described. So no, I
1: definitely agree. I definitely agree on all of that. How and, and this is the point. So when you're the bank example that you're using, the bank for whatever reasons is saying we want to take more risk. We're sitting, look at what we're sitting on. Spreads are compressing, prices are going up, right? So they're changing effectively their allocation from 20% to something smaller. And that happens, and my point is that happens every cycle with or without QE. And so so it might accelerate it a little bit, but it's 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 primarily that kind of that Minsky effect of people over time. You know, oh, this t- things are good, prices are stable, vol is low, spreads are coming in, and here and, and here we go. This is why we had the highest PEs we ever had in 2000 when Fed funds was at 5%, and why we had the biggest bubble ever in housing when Fed funds was at 5%. Remember, the the, the nastiest lending in the prime, the, the subprime lending and stuff took place in 2005, 6, and 7, and Fed funds was already high. We didn't even we couldn't even spell QE at that point. We didn't even know what it was because it didn't <laughs> exist. So. What I'm trying to say to people is, it, it, people saying, "Oh, stocks are going up. I don't understand and totally why they're going up. They tell me the Fed is printing money. It must be the Fed because I don't believe it. You know, you want if you don't if it's a bear market, you don't want to say i maybe I'm wrong. You want to say no. I'd be right if the Fed weren't driving up prices. But we have too many examples to say uh, uh, counterexamples where the Fed wasn't doing QE." and rates were a lot higher where the same dynamic was happening. So I just don't think it's as powerful as people make it out to be, though there is a fairly powerful placebo effect and a reverse placebo effect. Though I think if price, if you're recovering from a crisis and you're taking out you know, through QT, equity prices are kind of going up and risk appetite is normalizing. So it kind of countervails the reverse placebo effect that doesn't happen so much On the other side. So I I think people are overestimating. There are a lot of people who are clinging on to a bearish posture right now. uh, And they're they're saying because QT QT is going to come and it's going to take all the money away. Well, whose money is going to take away? If you don't want to sell, if you don't want to sell your, if you you don't want to buy bonds, uh, you won't buy bonds, right? Someone else will. Now, the other thing is when we look back at QT one, two, QE one, two, and three, you'll see, and this is the other transmission mechanism that one is moving up the curve. The other is you buy bonds, the Fed buys bonds, it lowers rates, it stimulates activity, and it stimulates investment, right, uh, financial investment. That didn't happen, right? Because when they did QE, yields went higher. QE1, QE one yields went higher. When they did QE2, yields went higher. I'll, I'll circulate a graph, there were a lot of graphs going around a number of years ago on this particular issue showing uh, what happened. And it's because, and this is gets back to, to uh, a key point, People's economic expectations are a much more important driver of yields than QE, QT, or, or Treasury supply. And we see this time and time again, right? And people say, well, what about 2018 when the Fed said that they were doing QT? Well, you have to remember, they started QT and QE in 2000. And, uh, they started QT and hiking rates in 2015, right? When they stopped was July 2019 between the starting point and the end point the S&P was up 50 percent
0: yeah that's so, the effect yeah.
1: of QT so I think people are, are, are kind of overestimating
0: yeah so also when it comes to bond market it's really about what part of the bond market are we talking about I mean if we're talking about two-year bonds then obviously the federal reserve has a larger impact on that side of the market than it has or it will ever have on a 10-year or a 30-year bond because as I always say a 30-year bond is nothing. Bond yield is nothing else than inflation expectation over the next 30 years, economic growth expectations or real interest rate expectations over the next 30 years, and the term premium. That's basically what you're trying to prize up there. And I'm sorry, but the Federal Reserve impact on 30-year bond yields, and I mean like macro impact, 6 to 12 months ahead, it's very, very, it's much smaller than people expect it to be. So it could be, Mark, that if they say... Okay. We're gonna sell all our third-year bonds or ten-year bonds from our balance sheet, all in the in the you know in the, in the basically in the belly of the dealers. Then these dealers have to make some space temporarily. Speaking, they have you know to have to, they have to warehouse all this inventory all of a sudden. So you might have some temporary effects, but long-term, I do agree with you that macro. Well, you, you
1: could, but we haven't in the past. So in the past, and it, maybe it's different a little bit this time because the sizes involved are larger. That's totally possible. But if economic expectations are improving. Right, while the Fed is doing QT, yields are going to go higher. Yeah, right. That's and that's my and I'm thinking normally I'll, I think about the ten year because it's kind of a neutral point. It's not neutral, but it has some Fed influence. Uh, right, but but not as little as the thirty year, not not as much as the two year. So it's a good point to say how are markets reacting, right? And it's also if you look at the holdings, the 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 Fed's holding of bonds. You know, I think it's seven year or something along those lines. So the 10 is a better proxy yeah. for, for what happens. But my, the bigger point is if you tell most people that we see on Twitter that we interact with that when and a lot of people don't even remember, remember this now that yields went higher when the Fed was buying bonds under QE, QE1 yeah. and QE2 and QE3, they would say no way because they think whether the Fed is buying or not drives everything. And economic expectations, which the Fed buying can have an effect on, that's the right. placebo effect, right? Um, uh, it's, 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 it always comes back to the economic expectations. And I think people have this wrong. I think they're overestimating. A lot of bears are counting on QE, QT to bail them out, right? And I think we've seen the worst. I think we've seen the worst of, uh, of the damage in financial markets already, because it's very hard to imagine a shock larger than the one we just had. Here's a real simple behavioral example. The first time uh, gasoline went to $4 in the United States, I think it was 2015 or something like that, or somewhere a little earlier when there was the bubbling gas prices, remember? That popped in 2014. Somewhere around there, 2012, 2013, oil, gasoline got to $4 a, a gallon and people freaked out. It went back down. A few months later, it went back to $4. And no one said it, no one reacted at all. Because we were kind of used to it. The second time you have the same shock, it has to be bigger for the same kind of behavioral response. So for me to imagine um an inflationary shock larger than what we saw, which is what scared us, right? Is very unlikely. So now we have a lot of people that de risked. And they're going to have to find their way back into a market. Now, we may have a pullback in the market and the economy may slow down. And a lot of other things can happen. But that kind of shock that scared the living hell out of people, we don't know how, how high inflation is going or what the Fed is going to have to do to kill it, was really scaring people. Now, the Fed may still have to hike rates more than people are comfortable with. But the scope for that is much more defined. So, like I said, I think it's hard for us to get back to that level of fear uh, that we had. And therefore, though we may sell off now and the market is overbought and a bit stretched, I think we've seen the lows and the damage in financial markets. Also, the commodities have peaked, credit spreads have peaked. There are a lot of other indicators saying, okay, we've had our panic moment. Um, Let's just figure out where reality is. And people right now are trying to figure out how to get on risk, how to put risk back on without exposing themselves to too much downside. That seems to me where we are right
0: now. Yeah, Mark. Also, if you look a bit at the rally, especially the second leg of the rally, was rather a let's re-leverage and take risk on anything that we have basically sold in big size over the last 6 or 12 months. So anything that was hammered the most, even high beta, cyclicals, meme stocks, anything like that, was basically subject to a big gamma squeeze and to a big uh, re-leveraging out of what I call... Yeah. yeah, like like a volatility target funds, right? I mean, volatility in yes. the first six months of the of the year went up everywhere. FX implied and realized, FX yes. uh, interest rates, equities. So these guys, right. if you're targeting volatility, you got zero diversification benefits, and volatility is going up across asset classes. Now you have a little bit of the opposite happening. So obviously, if you are so much under exposed, you have to get some of that exposure back on, right? Yep. So the the, the, the more long term question I have for you is. Uh, what will be the level of inflation that the Federal Reserve is actually happy with? Do you subscribe to the hypothesis that they will be okay-ish with 3 to 4% inflation, or the target no, remains 2%? I think,
1: I think it just to, it, to, to say it in French, it's bullshit, right? Um, <laughs> the Fed will never tolerate that. Uh, I agree. They, they may tolerate 25 for a little bit. Right, or something, because if you average it out over time, but they're not going to tolerate a three-handle or a four, uh, and certainly not a four-handle. That's my very strong view as a policy guy, knowing how people think. It's not their mandate, right? Uh, So right now, it matters for the Fed. This is what they're going to be looking at. So there are a lot of noises, and this is a really interesting subject, I think, that's under-explored. What we saw when COVID hit was an explosion in goods demand, right? Obviously, because we were locked in our homes and we couldn't do anything else but order on Amazon. So now we're reverting that. And everybody I talk to, all of our friends are talking about the vacations they want to go on, right? So we're, we're now we're kind of all in for services. And it was such a dramatic swing towards goods that we built up all these crazy inventories that we're now working off. So what you're going to see... Yeah. Is a massive decline in all the economic activity indicators related to goods, right? The problem is our indices uh, and our GDP is still skewed towards a goods economy because these things lag, the weights lag. So it's overestimating the downside and people are really missing that it's goods that are collapsing but services are staying bid right? So it leads people to overestimate the probability of recession and overestimate the weakness in the economy. So in, on the inflation side, we're, we're going to see the goods market come down quickly, right? And we're already seeing those prices come in. What will be interesting is how fast does that bleed into services? So the Fed is going to be looking for that because what happened when we had inflation is we had a big shock, right? I mean, it, people always want to blame things on policy and this and that. And it, in retrospect, the fiscal, uh, fiscal stimulus was a little bit too large, right? But the real problem is we had a series of shocks and we all know from economics, if you have a shock and just one shock to prices, it's probably going to be transitory, right? If you have several shocks that keep prices up there, the longer prices, the shocks keep prices high, the more it bleeds into non-transitory categories. Right. Yeah. And that's what we had. Now we need to see the reverse. How fast does it come out of the non-transitory category? So the Fed is going to be looking at the rate of decline and the composition to see is the edge coming off of service prices, right? Be, because that's what they'll have to squeeze. I think inflation is probably going to come down pretty quickly in the coming months. Um, it, and then it's going to get a little stickier. It's going to get a little harder as we try and bleed out of the services sector, that inflation that, that bled in from uh, a, 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 a series of shocks. If that is sticky and high, then the Fed is going to have to stay. And this is why I think the Fed is so against people pricing in cuts for next year, because the Fed says, we don't know how hard it's going to be to squeeze out, you know, from four to two or whatever, you know, three and a half to two or that remaining part. They don't know. And we don't know. Right. But that's what we're going to be looking for. And that's why the Fed is saying, hey, you're jumping the gun a little bit uh, by uh, pricing in cuts. Uh, cuts for next year. I don't think they're as worried about the stock market going up or down. In general, they're not as worried about the stock market as people think, right? Uh, you know, uh, there, there's what's that Italian expression, Porca pensa, porco pensa, porco right? I mean, people project their own um, uh, kind of kind of their own thoughts. So guys in the stock market think that the Fed pay more attention to stocks than they actually do. Fortunately, we've discovered now that it was never a Fed put on the market. It was a Fed put on the economy that's what they care about they yeah. weren't buying they they weren't talking about easing because the stock market went down they were talking about easing because the economy was going down and the stock market was telling us about it right so now uh, for the first time we see that they're they they're they're, uh, they're not doing that so the fed says hey just wait a minute um you know um, just wait a minute and let's see how the stickier components of inflation uh come down
0: so, Mark, uh, one thing that strikes me out of this very good macro backdrop you depicted here is that you think that there is, a, there is a chance, at least, that the market is overestimating the ability and the willingness from the Federal Reserve to cut interest rates as priced already in by the dollar or the software curve, anyway, futures curve in bond markets and forward curves are pricing cuts next year. And you're telling me, Alf, if I know as a, pol- a former policy uh, economist these guys and their incentive scheme, they are gonna be, at this juncture, very reluctant to be seen cutting rates. So you basically want to fade, I guess, or you lean towards not accepting that pricing as a fair assessment going forward. But that would basically mean as well, Mark, that the Federal Reserve is gonna remain tighter than markets as as an aggregate pricing mechanism are already implying today. So what do you make out of that sustained tighter stance that the Federal Reserve is gonna have? What's the broader market implication?
1: It's tighter relative to the, the uh, it, it's it's tighter relative to the counterfactual, but it's not tight. The levels are still low. And what I've noticed about a lot of things, in, from a, a little bit like the example of four dollar gas, there's a sticker shock effect. When prices, so when rates go up, everybody reacts. Uh-huh. Oh, geez, it's going up. Oh my gosh, it's going to hurt. Then they get used to it, unless it's really, really, really high, right? But at three percent or whatever they will pick a rate, you know, three percent. People go, okay, well, I can live with that. And they start repricing their demand. I think that's what will happen. So I don't think it's a big break on economic activity at all. And even on financial activity. I just don't, I think people get used to it and they move on. I mean, like I said, we had bigger bubbles with Fed funds at 5% and and 10-year yields at 6.5%.
0: But Mark, somebody's going to try and argue back against that. I just imagine the audience listening to that by saying... So, Mark, you're basically telling me that the neutral interest rate is much higher than what the Fed told us it is. Because, you know, if people can easily get used to a 3% nominal rate, plus the credit spread on top of it to borrow, because it's not that restrictive, it means that neutral interest rates are higher than what the Federal Reserve is telling us. It, but it, those, it, those, those... Sorry, yeah, go I'm ahead. Sorry,
1: finish. No, yes. but
0: what I, want, I wanted to conclude by saying the 5% reference for risk-free rates in 2000 obviously also has to do with 2000 as in maybe different demographics different uh, leverage in the in the system financial and real economy so what's your you know your answer to that sort of comparison
1: yeah yeah well it, sure it's but that's exactly the point is is the other factors matter more so the fact that we it, it's not the it's not the interest level of interest rate or it's not the QE that gets us to take all this risk it might be demographics it might be any number of things right uh, or it could be just that normal Minsky function. In 2000, we had a long run in tech market, and everybody wanted to take risk, so they were buying crazy IPOs, right? Yeah. That's what it's it, it's it's the nature of man. It's how we behave, right? If you see your neighbor getting wealthy, and you say, "I'm smarter than that guy," I'm going to do it with more leverage, right? <laughs> and then pretty soon everybody's doing it, and you have the stripper with five houses, owning five houses that we saw in that movie, right? Yeah, um, The Big Short. That's kind of how this thing plays out. And I think that's the major dynamic. The, the exact point Alf, is it's these other things that matter, where so many people we talk to think it's all about the Fed, it's all about QE, it's all about the level of interest rates. Now, back to the 3%. It may well be that that ends up being too high a neutral rate or even too low a neutral rate. Uh, but the Fed is saying, chill. You know, um, as they say in Rome, say manzo, right, be beef. <laughs> Just chill, chill for a second. I think that's a Roman expression, right? Yes. Um, uh, just chill for a second and let's see where this goes before you price in cutting rates. We don't know where neutral is. No one knows where neutral is. Let's get to something that might approximate neutral and we'll feel our way through from there. If eventually we have to cut rates a little, then we will. If we have to raise them a little, then we will, but let's just get there. you know. And, and I think from there, as long as the moves are gradual, um, people won't freak out, right? Because as we know in, 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 from our macro experience, it's often the speed of the move than the le- and more than the level of the move that scares people. And we've had that big scare. So I, what I'm trying to say from here, inflation is gonna get on the right path, whether it's a 45 degree angle down or a 75 degree angle down, it's still going down, right? And and people are, people are gonna say, okay, well maybe I can step out and take risk. I'm not scared the way I was after Russia invaded Ukraine and energy prices went through the roof and all commodities went crazy, right? I think it's really hard to replicate that fear. The bar is really, really high because it would have to be worse than then. So this is what makes me constructive. Uh, And I haven't always been constructive. If you you search my timeline on Twitter for bearish or bear market, you'll see plenty of references over the past year or whatever. but I think that's where I think that's where we are now, and there are a lot of guys that are still fighting it. And as you know, Alf, um, you can survive being caught in, as a money manager being caught in a in a bear market, right? Because everybody gets caught in the bear market pretty much, with rare exception. What will get you fired for sure is missing the bull rebound. And that's, that's right. why guys are stressing now, and they're looking around. They're going, "Okay, what hasn't run? What can I buy?" You know, yeah. and 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 that's kind of how you have to approach this market. Yeah. Whether we get a short-term retracement or not, you know, you can tell by the power. We've been overbought for a few days, and we know the characteristic of bull markets is you get overbought and you stay overbought, and the market doesn't let you in. That's exactly what's been happening so far the last few days. Right, the market yeah. keeps going up when you expect it to retrace.
0: And the other thing that I notice as well is that if you look at the amount of people that are overbidding for upside convexity, so they're buying yes. out-of-money the calls, if you look at the skew there, for example, especially long-dated out-of-money yes. calls, six months, 12 yes. months, yeah, it goes to show like... Probably a couple of asset managers like, okay, I, I even, I'm not going to buy the underlying, but I'm going to buy something that gives me upside. I mean, I just need to have something in my book in case I'm wrong on this bear market thing. You
1: now, know. If they're hedging their upside the way people hedge their downside when the bear market, right? They're hedging their upside risk.
0: Pretty much. Mark. That's, uh, that's, Mark, yeah. I mean, thank you very much for coming on the show. This has been such a great conversation. I hope people appreciate it as well. I want to give them the chance to find you in case they haven't yet and come on shame on you guys but where can they find you mark
1: well i'm on mark dow uh, you know mark underscore dow on twitter but i have a, a little subscription small subscription service where i basically give trading tips and macro uh advice or whatever called behavioral macro uh and uh you know it's a small thing it's it's and that's where you can find me if you really want to ask me questions and, and learn about how to manage risk or get feedback on macro uh, ideas or, you know, m- macro thoughts in general.
0: Mark, your uh, experience is really invaluable. Thanks again for being here with us. Of course, guys, if you want to listen to more of these interviews, you can subscribe to this YouTube channel here at BlockWorks. And um, we'll see you again next time. Thanks again, Mark.
1: Thank you, Alf. It's been a pleasure.